So last, last week, we um, looked at Psalm 13. We finished the Gospel of John. We're taking a brief time to look at some psalms. And this week, we're going to come to Psalm 14. Last week, we looked at who the enemy is in the psalms. And we know from Psalm chapter 2, which is, if you want to read the psalms, Psalm 2 is essential, that the one meditating on a vain thing is the enemy. That's what the enemy does. He meditates on a vain, a futile, an empty thing. He's the one who takes counsel in his heart against God, against Yahweh and against his anointed. He's the one who is saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. Let us, let us walk our own way independently of God, the creator. And so last week we heard the king lamenting How long will my enemy be exalted over me? We heard the king praying. Look, answer me, O Yahweh my God. Give light to my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy, says, I have overcome him. And my adversaries rejoice that I am shaken. So we talked last week about how we as Christians can pray a prayer like that with all its talk of enemies and adversaries. In this next psalm, David is the king, remember. He's going to meditate. This next psalm is really a meditation. It's not necessarily technically a prayer. It's a meditation. And it's interesting what David the king is going to meditate on is his enemies. So it's kind of a Not the natural thing to do, at least as we would think. He's going to meditate on the nature of his enemy. And he does this not to be morbid. I just love to think about my enemies and how bad they are. He does this ultimately to strengthen his faith. So if we want to live, stick our heads in the sand, if we want to live pretending that there's no such thing as enemies, then, then when the enemies come around, We're going to be in for quite a rude awakening. Our faith may be shaken, challenged. And so we would be wise with the psalmist to meditate on the enemy. But it's not ultimately the enemy, as we can probably guess, upon which the psalmist is meditating. So David begins his meditation on the enemy with these words. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay, there are four different Hebrew words for the fool in the Old Testament. The most common one is kasil, okay? And that's, if you, I have a, a legacy standard Bible, and that just translates that word as simply fool. The other three words are all translated differently. The Legacy Standard Bible translates them differently so you can know it's a different Hebrew word. So they translate it, number one, the simple-minded fool, then there's the ignorant fool, and then there's the wicked fool. So the Bible is really rich in its vocabulary for the fool. Now those are just the words for fool. Then you have other words like senseless and and I don't remember all the others I looked at, but if you read Proverbs, there's plenty of them. 
The Bible is rich in this vocabulary, and it's that, it's that last word, naval, or the wicked fool in the LSB, that David uses here. And we can't, we can't take these four words for fool and say, this fool is specifically this and really artificially divide. But one commentator points out that a naval, remember Nabal? Remember Nabal and Abigail and David going to wipe out, you know, and Abigail went and saved Nabal's life and then he died of a heart attack, essentially, or a stroke. Nabal, or Naval in the Hebrew, uh, his name was Fool, right? So that's where this Naval, we can, we can think of it in that light. This commentator says that Naval is a species of fool. Base. Worthless. An object of scorn. He's never merely stupid, though he is stupid. He is morally deficient. That, that's the, if you look up all the places where Naval is used in context, that's the flavor, and we talk about the flavor of words, that you begin to see. So Naval is probably the strongest of all the words for fool. It's the word that's used specifically for that ultimate, unsurpassable, you cannot, you cannot exceed this level of folly, this intellectual, moral, in your handout, insanity of saying in one's heart, there is no God. And it's important for us to see that the fool says this in his heart. This is really important. Because it's deep, 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 deep down in the center of his being that the Naval entertains this conviction. This isn't just like, I'm going to go to school and sit in a class and hear from an atheistic professor and I'm going to come to this idea. No, this is a heart thing. So in other words, whether the fool believes philosophically that a supreme being or deity exists is irrelevant doesn't matter and in fact whether he believes that the name of that deity is Yahweh or even whether he believes that that deity sent his son Jesus Christ to this earth may also be irrelevant because deep down the fool whatever he says he believes Deep down, he's always working to convince himself there really is no God. And you know he's doing that because of the choices that he makes in the life that he lives. It must be so. At least there is not a holy God. A just and sovereign God to whom I must one day give account for myself. For every word, thought, and action. There is not the true and living God who is who he says he is. Okay. And so one commentator writes like this. The fool is one who chooses never to think of a God. Specifically, I want to point out a holy, sovereign God. As being... He says involved, I might even say intimately concerned with all of my daily affairs. So 
We have this recognition, this deep consciousness that the God of the Bible, the God who is holy, the God who is sovereign, the God who is merciful, is deeply, intimately involved and concerned with all of my daily affairs, the one to whom I will give an account for all. That God, says the fool, deep down in his heart, does not exist. So we see that for David, there are only two categories of people. And brothers and sisters, this is... This is This is difficult teaching, but it is so important for us, it is so important for us to know the truth about ourselves, about God, and about the good news of the gospel, what it really is. For David, there are only two categories of people. There is the atheist, and remember, I've just defined the atheist as David defines him. Not the one who who sits in an academic setting and says there's no supreme deity or being. That that is an atheist. But but you can acknowledge a supreme being and in the Bible still be an atheist. You You can even profess to be a Christian and in the Bible still be an atheist. The atheist, the fool who says in his heart, in his heart, in his heart, there is no God. And then the other category is the biblical theist, okay? The one who has turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. To use New Testament language, we could say it like this. There are only atheists and Christians. We could, we could call this atheism, and some do, a practical atheism, which is to say that I'm living as if the holy and sovereign and merciful God of the Bible doesn't exist. I'm living as if. But really, brothers and sisters, it's more than that. It's not just practical atheism. It is an intellectual atheism. Because our minds always work to affirm what our hearts are desiring. And so it is the thought, deep down, even if I never speak it out loud, even if I would contradict it speaking out loud, even if I never consciously articulate it, it is the thought that such a God isn't for real, that such a God doesn't really exist, and our lives speak far louder than our words. It's this thought in the heart that is the height. It is the apex, it is the pinnacle of folly. There are many, as we just pointed out, there are many professing, actively worshiping Christians. Christians going to church every week, singing their worship songs and their praise songs, and, and together with, as well as, other adherents of other religions. And they do believe that a God of their own imagining exists. But for the psalmist, that's still an atheist. Because there's only one God, and it's the true God, and everything else is not a God. If you don't believe the true God exists, who is who he says he is, then you're an atheist. Because if you denied the existence of the only true God, the biblical God, who's revealed himself in Jesus. They do believe that the God of their own imagining exists, 
and invariably, that is going to be a God who is not infinitely holy, absolutely sovereign, according to the biblical definitions of those words. There are many professing Christians and religious people who, who, who do believe that this God of their own imagining is in fact involved with all their daily affairs. We can think of many examples, but at an extreme level in our culture today, we think of the professing Christians in worshiping churches that affirm, and when I say worshiping, I'm talking about a false worship, that affirm the sin of homosexuality. For David, these professing Christians, and many other of other kinds, that's the, the extreme end, we could say, they are no less atheistic than the secular materialist who says that there is no spirit, there's no spiritual world, it's all what I can touch and see. They're no less atheistic. These professing Christians are, as well, the fools who have said in their heart, and brothers and sisters, this phrase, may this phrase just kind of sober us There is no God. And it's this thought in the heart that then corrupts and makes abominable all that the fool does. It's like, as James talks about, you know, a good well brings forth pure water, right? A good tree brings forth good fruit. So the psalmist goes on. David continues in the second half of the verse. He says, They corrupt. They make abominable their deeds. Those are two of the strongest possible words David could have picked. He had a lot of words to choose from, and he chose two of the strongest. To corrupt in the Hebrew Bible really just means to destroy. So in different contexts, you'll see it, you'll see it being used for laying something waste, devastating and ravaging, uh, to ruin, to pollute, to spoil. At the end of the day, to make something totally worthless. It's a strong word. In your handout, too strong, according to our human wisdom. Wouldn't Wouldn't you say? But if in his heart... The fool says there is no God. Then I ask you to think about it. What are all the deeds that arise from out of that heart? There is nothing I've ever done, said, or thought that has not arisen from out of the center of my being, my heart. But if, if my heart says there is no God, then all the deeds that arise from that heart must by definition be corrupted. Ruined, polluted, totally worthless. This this isn't to say that the fool never does any good in society. There are different kinds of good. So in a purely horizontal sense, if we leave God out of the equation, and that should give you a good indicator right there of the problem, can we ever really truly fully leave God out of the equation? No, we can't. But if we did, for a moment, and we just thought about the things we do on the horizontal level, then the fool may do many good things. 
He may do many good things that are not at all worthless and that that we can be grateful for. But can we finally separate the horizontal from the vertical? Can we do that? Can I in my life separate the deeds that I do here towards you and around and with, with the nature of my relationship with the only true and living God? Can I do that? What is truly good and worthy, and I say truly, it is truly good and worthy in society at the purely horizontal level may be at the same time wholly corrupted. Think about that. Wholly corrupted and polluted and utterly worthless because it has its source in a heart that says, even if not out loud or consciously, there is no God. So even as this good person professes to be wise, he is the ultimate fool. He has made even his good deeds to be corrupt. When David refers to the fool's deeds, uh, he's he's obviously talking about different actions, different things. Well, you did that. Oh, and you did that. And then there's this you did. But when he refers to the deeds, it's really a way of summing up the whole of his lived life. The fool's deeds is the whole life he lives. The Apostle Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now we don't, before, every time I take a step, do I have to say in the name of the Lord Jesus? No, that's not what he's saying. He's he's talking about the heart from which my steps arise on a daily basis. And we can be more conscious about that. Paul's certainly encouraging that. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. But now let's take it and look at it. Because the fool has said in his heart there is no God, that means there is nothing he has ever done to the glory of the true God or with thanksgiving to him. Therefore, all that he does, all that he does, from the meal he eats, right, to, to everything else in his life, to the words he speaks, all, all, is corrupt, is utterly worthless, is of no spiritual or saving good. We can never accurately assess our deeds. And I think we all are. Usually, even this is so ingrained in us, we always have ourselves at some level on this this scale, right? We're always assessing our deeds. Am I feeling good about myself? Am I feeling less good about myself today? Do I feel a bit guilty for this? Do I feel, am I congratulating myself for that? But at the end of the day, we can never accurately assess our deeds, all that we say and do, apart from the fundamental orientation of my life. And it's this reality that David gives expression to when he says, they corrupt, they make abominable their deeds. And again, sometimes I think if we are not careful, we can read this and think, I think this is hyperbole. 
I think he's exaggerating, but that's all right. We always exaggerate to make a point, right? No, that's not what Paul, David is doing. He uses these strong words because he means them, because he needed words this strong. Um, something abominable is something grotesque, repulsive, loathsome, abhorrent. And so all the deeds of the fool who says in his heart there is no God are incompatible with the nature of the God who is. So I say there's no God, but there's the God who is. Therefore, everything that I do is incompatible with his nature and is therefore an abomination to him. We see the trap, we see the pit, we see the bondage that we're in, in our sin. We say, I thought this was about that guy. I thought this was about the person over there. Well, we should be able to see by now that at the end of the day, it's not. It's about where we all were. And I pray by the grace of God, are no longer. But do we still protest? Is David really saying that the atheist can do nothing good? Is he really saying that the entirety of the whole fallen humanity is atheistic? Atheistic? Nothing good? Everyone? David answers simply in the third part of verse 1. There is no one who does any good. Brothers and sisters, it struck me this week, it, it hit me again, that I don't get up here, I pray that I don't get up here any week and, and say anything that came from myself. And this is least of all what I would invent to preach and to say to you this morning. But this is the word of God and what he reveals about us in our sin. Here in these few words, it's the whole biblical doctrine of total depravity. There is no one who does any good. All are atheists. All are fools. All have said in their heart, all have said in their heart, without exception, there is no God, not the true and living God, who is who he says he is. We remember that David is speaking here of fallen humanity. We know this. Apart from the sovereign grace of God that raises sinners from death to life, that works faith in us so that we are declared righteous in Christ and then enabled to live righteously. We know that David is speaking of humanity apart from that. But to be even more clear, let's ask this kind of a question. Is David speaking of the whole of fallen humanity only as it exists in all those pagan nations outside, like Moab and Edom and Ammon and all those? Or is he also speaking of this fallen humanity as he sees it in God's own covenant people in the Old Testament? Of course, the answer is both. There is no one who does good, neither Jew nor Gentile. Deuteronomy 32 says, The rock, his work is perfect. And now we see the contrast between, between the atheist, the, the, the fool, and God, the rock, His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness. 
and without injustice. And isn't it refreshing to see this, to hold this view of God before our eyes, righteous and upright as he. And then he says of, of the fools in Israel who represent all apart from God's sovereign grace, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Now, you remember, a lot of those people looked a lot like all our neighbors look and like you and I looked, right? Do you thus repay Yahweh, O people who are foolish, naval, and without wisdom? Is not he your father who has bought you, he has made you and established you? Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, you grew fat, thick and sleek. Then he abandoned God who made him and treated with foolishness. Naval again, the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. Yahweh saw this. We're going to see that in just a moment in Psalm 14. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation. Sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. So they are atheists. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So you've got the foolish Gentile nations and you have foolish Israel. All are fools. All have said in their hearts, there is no God. All have corrupted and made abominable all their deeds. And then we ask ourselves, did David, is David just having a bad day? Right. Did he just like have some really bad experience? with a few really bad apples. And, and, and now he's just generalizing to everyone. Well, let me say, it is possible that he did have a really bad experience with some really bad apples. And, he, and, he, and he, he did generalize from that to say, wow, this is what mankind is capable of. How can this guy do this? Well, it must be because, because there's something deep down in his heart that's in the heart of all human beings. Because there's no, there's no possible way that David was saying, well, I know there's a lot of better off people that could never do that because they're just better people in general. How did David then come to this conclusion? He writes in verse 2, Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has insight, anyone who seeks after God. Now look at that, brothers and sisters. Who is, God, who is Yahweh looking for? Okay, We see now that in the eyes of a holy God, there are only two possible categories of people. We saw David had that, but now we see that God does. One is, in your handout, either in the category of the fool, or he is in the category of the one who has insight. I, I challenge you to think of a third category. You're either in the category of the fool, and now we know what the fool is. He says in his heart, there is no God. Or we're in the category of the one who has insight. One is either in the category of the man who says in his heart, there is no God. Or he's in the category of the man earnestly seeking after the true and living God. Not, not the seeker-sensitive stuff that I talk about, as though, as though the fool is seeking. The fool never seeks, ultimately. 
But God does a work so that one day we're talking about that saving seeking, which is the seeking of the one who has insight, whose eyes have been opened to see. We are the seekers by God's grace. One is either corrupting and making abominable all his deeds, or he is living righteously by faith. But when Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men outside of and apart from his sovereign saving grace, what does he see? He sees that the whole of fallen humanity falls into only one category. And so this is God's verdict. Who, as Elihu says in Job, does not need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. If we, if we are tempted to question the verdict of God, remember that our judgment requires that we evaluate, that we examine, that we ask questions, that we look, and even then, we can't see, we don't know, we don't have infallible knowledge. God is the one before whom man does not need to go further in judgment. And he renders this verdict. They have all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's impossible. Can you imagine, I challenge you to imagine, a verdict more universal in its scope. All the sons of men, every single individual person, the sons of men all together, a single, undifferentiated mass of humanity. That's the universal scope in positive terms. Then he says the same thing in negative terms. All, all together, no one, not even one. It is impossible to imagine a verdict more universal or, in your handout, more devastating and far-reaching. He says they have turned aside. That could sound a bit harmless to us. Oh, you've turned aside. Maybe just a little detour before you... What he's saying is that, no, they've pursued their own way. They have turned to pursue their own way in opposition to God. Even if it's a religious and moral life, it's pursued in opposition to the true God. They've become worthless, he says. This is his word, God's verdict, completely ruined and spoiled. They do no good. We say they... But we know, as David did, David knew this too, that there was a time when we were all included in this they. I had turned aside. All of us had become worthless. Not one of us did good. We were all of us fools. Every single one of us here said in our heart, there is no God. That, that, that gets to the heart of our depravity. This is God's own verdict who looks down from heaven upon the sons of men. And so Paul asks, what then? 
Are we Jews better than the pagan Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all, all under sin. As it is written. Paul says, this is not something new. It's all over the Old Testament, but specifically, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews too, so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. And so it is against the backdrop of this hopeless, impossible reality that this word, it's like you've never heard this word like this before. The power of God is fully revealed in the gospel. It is against the backdrop of that hopeless, impossible reality that the sovereign mercy, the mercy of God in Christ is seen in its splendor. It's against that hopeless, impossible backdrop that we come to see truly the miracle that I stand before you a saved, redeemed child of God. So, with Paul, we confess with all of our hearts from him, through him, to him are all things. To him alone be the glory forever. Amen. Paul quotes the first three verses of Psalm 14 because he wants to show how we all stand, all of us, we stand equally in need of the sovereign saving grace of God. And again, that is so important. Let this, let this rob you of all your, your self-congratulation, of all of mine. Let us, let us see that we were all fools saying in our hearts there is no God and God by his grace has plucked us out of that. But when David wrote these verses in the beginning, he was already assuming the the righteous generation that had been plucked out by God's grace. He was assuming that reality. After all, he was a part of that generation. And so, and by generation, I don't mean, the, the, the Bible uses generation to refer to a certain kind of people. So the generation of the righteous, the generation of the wicked. So David is writing it as a meditation on the nature of the enemy. Now we come back to where we started. Okay, now now take all that we just heard and say now this is David's meditation on the nature of the enemy in order to strengthen the faith of God's people. How does this strengthen the faith of God's people? Do you you kind of look at this and say, oh my goodness, now I'm really terrified, right? This is the nature of the enemy? But what is it that's encouraging to your faith in what we have just seen? David continues in verse 4. 
And he's recounting now the words of Yahweh. Listen to these words. Do all the workers of iniquity not know? Who eat up my people as they eat bread. And do not call upon Yahweh. See, there again is the atheist. The atheist is the one who doesn't call out to Yahweh in faith and obedience and love. That's the biblical atheist. It's the biblical doctrine of total depravity. Some people get confused by this, but it does not say, and we do not say, and no one says, that all men and women are always as bad as they could be. But this doctrine does explain how some men are as bad as they are. And especially how some men can be such hateful, violent enemies of God's people. So the one who says in his heart, there is no God. Consider, I I, I invite you to meditate. This is a meditation. So I'm asking you to meditate on this. The one who says in his heart, there is no God. And that's every person outside of Christ is capable of every kind of evil. And especially of every kind of evil against God's people. Okay, understand this. The psalmist says, David says, they eat up God's people as they eat bread. We see this today. One commentator puts it like this. They think they're not doing anything more sinful than when they're eating their their breakfast. And indeed, they think they're justified, that it's irreproachable, that this is lawful to them. And we see this in the, in the, in the self-righteousness and the attempt to take the moral high ground of the fool and the wicked around us. But if we've really taken seriously this verdict, God's verdict, on the whole mass of fallen humanity... Should we be surprised by this? In fact, we're not surprised when the fool hates us and even believes he's morally justified in seeking our destruction, in seeking our our demise, because we're not surprised when the fool acts according to his what? Folly. Do you see how our faith is being strengthened? Because who is the fool? Yet there's also a sense in which, because of God's grace in our lives, not because we're any better ultimately in ourselves than the fool, but because of God's grace, we are astonished, are we not, at just how senseless and stupid and ignorant the fool is. If in chapter 2 of Psalms, Yahweh sits in heaven and laughs. You get the picture? Yahweh's sitting in heaven laughing. Here in chapter 14, we see a different picture, but very much similar. Now, he looks down from where he's sitting in heaven. He looks down from heaven and is in disbelief, if God can be said to be in disbelief, at the folly of all the workers of iniquity. Do they really not No? Are they really so completely void of all insight that they dare to touch God's people? 
There's a senseless man in the Old Testament, and he's described using the form of a word that refers to cattle and beasts. So there's a, if you see the cow in the field, down, if you're going down the road, the cow is senseless, but that's all right. That's not an insult. It's a cow. When you describe, when you take the word that's used for a cow and you apply it to a human being, that becomes an indictment. So we read in Psalm 92, a senseless man, the man who is no better than a brute animal, does not know. Like a cow doesn't know. I'm not, I mean, you pick whatever, the nicest animal you can think of. It doesn't know. The senseless man does not know. And a fool does not understand. What does the senseless man not know? What does he not? What does the workers of iniquity, what do they not know? Verses 5 to 6. There, in other words, in the very place where they were eating God's people like they eat bread, there they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. And in our day, there's a lot of talk about the afflicted and the oppressed. And again, in context in the Psalms, in our day, it's almost as though the poor are automatically righteous. What, what, what is the definition of righteous? The definition of righteous is poor. In the scriptures, it's the other way around. It's, it's the poor, because they are afflicted as righteous people, who are righteous. Right? Who, who, are, who are oppressed in the, in the context of, of the covenant people in the covenant writings of Scripture? They are the righteous of God's covenant people. And because they're oppressed and afflicted, they're also the poor. Right? Who are the afflicted here? They are the righteous whom the wicked oppress. But Yahweh is his refuge. Oh, brothers and sisters, When we consider the nature of the enemy, we are comforted to know that he is the fool. And we are comforted to know that the folly of the fool is seen in the reality that there is a God. That there is a holy and righteous and sovereign God who has shown mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Here then are words full of comfort and assurance What does the senseless man not know? He doesn't know this most basic, this most fundamental of all realities. It's even more basic than one plus one equals two. It's far more basic than that. He doesn't know this fundamental reality that there is a God. Now he did know this and there's a sense in which he still does know it. But he's become futile in his thoughts. All have become atheists. His foolish heart has been darkened. Professing to be wise, he has become the fool. Romans chapter 1. Let me ask again. What does the senseless man not know? He doesn't know this most basic, this most fundamental of all the things in the world that there is to know. You can go to school and you can learn all sorts of stuff. But the most basic, fundamental thing that we all should, must know is this. There is a holy, sovereign God who looks down from heaven 
and seize. And who will throw into terror and dread all the workers of iniquity who dare to touch his people. So we read in Psalm 92, A senseless man does not know, and a fool does not understand this, that when the wicked flourished, when they were eating God's people like eat, they eat bread, when they flourished like grass and all the workers of iniquity blossomed, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. And this teaches us wisdom. But you are on high forever, O Yahweh. For behold, your enemies, O Yahweh. For behold, your enemies will perish. All the workers of iniquity will be scattered. Psalm 94 is similar. Discern you senseless among the people. And when will you have insight, you fools? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? One plus one equals two. He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, he, he, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge, Yahweh knows the thoughts of man. And what is the thought of man deep in his heart? There is no God. Yahweh knows that thought is vanity. What does the senseless man not know? This is what he doesn't know. The most basic, fundamental of all realities in the universe, and it is this, that God is with the righteous generation. He is the refuge of his afflicted ones. And so it is the senseless man, the fool, who eats up God's people as he eats bread. This is who the enemy is. He is the fool. That's not to be mean. That's not for us to get on some self-righteous hobby horse. But it is essential that we remember this, that we meditate on that, and that in meditating on that, we make sure that we do not play the part of the fool. But that our heart continuously proclaims the reality, that our lives continuously proclaim the reality that there is a God, and that he is with the righteous generation, and that he is the refuge of his afflicted ones. Because what what the fool does not know, we do know. And this is the beauty of it. Because it's almost almost mind-boggling. We read the first three verses and it's like no one, there's no one, anyone, anywhere, all, all together, um, none. It's just constant. And then all of a sudden, we hear about this righteous generation. And by grace, I have been plucked out of a totally depraved humanity. And I have been given insight to understand it was not my own insight. It was not my own uh, superior ability to discern. I've been given insight to understand, to seek after God, and to call on his name, to see, to see the ultimate end of all the workers of iniquity among whom I once walked and the final salvation of all God's true people 
by grace alone, we are no longer here among the fools who do not know, but the righteous who do know. And so what do we pray? We pray with complete confidence in and with our King. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Now, is that beautiful? We see the world. We see the depravity. We see what we have been plucked out of. And now we long for this salvation to come out of Zion when Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people. May Jacob rejoice. May Israel be glad. Now, I could say this, I will probably say this, every single psalm that we ever preach to the rest of, until I don't preach anymore. We pray these words today in a way the Old Testament saints never could. See, when you read the psalms, you've got to see that the psalms have been taken up into Christ. And now we pray them today in ways the Old Testament saints couldn't yet. Because why? Well, already... Yahweh has installed his king upon the heavenly Zion, not the earthly one, the heavenly one, his holy mountain. This means that we see today the future judgment of the wicked, the final salvation of the righteous, already accomplished in the victory Christ achieved by his death, resurrection, and ascension. We see today the future judgment of the wicked and salvation of the righteous already accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. We see, and so we know today, in a way the Old Testament saints could never know. We we are wise today in a certain way that they could never be, and so we have perseverance and faith. Those are Paul's words. Perseverance and faith. In the midst of all our persecutions and afflictions, which we still endure. This is a plain indication, Paul says to the Christians in Thessalonica, of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering, since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give rest to you who are afflicted and to us as well at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God, who are atheists, fools. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord And from the glory of his might, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and be marveled at among all who have believed. We know today in a way the Old Testament saints never could know. So therefore, we're rejoicing already in the salvation of Israel. We're glad already in the restoration of the fortunes of Yahweh's people. And we live therefore in confident expectation of the day when our rejoicing will be complete and our gladness will be full. 
After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great crowd in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality and he has avenged the blood of his slaves shed by her hand. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever and a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his slaves, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And here are the two words from our psalm this morning. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And finally, when we reflect on the nature of the enemy. When we come to know today that the enemy is the enemy because of his folly. Therefore, we, who used to be fools ourselves, can now boldly speak the truth and live. Isn't this a relief to say? No longer is this word like righteous. I got a righteous life. No, this is this is a glorious word. We can boldly speak the truth and live righteous lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom we shine as lights in the world. Because, brothers and sisters, if God has taken us, if He has plucked us out of that mass of depraved humanity. We know he is still in the business of doing that plucking out work. And he uses us. He uses us as we shine his light in the world around us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have been humbled today by the divine assessment of of humanity, of our sin, of the deepest, deepest, deepest down thought of our heart, that though we might deny it's the thought of our heart, yet you see our hearts more clearly than we see our own hearts. And we know that apart from your sovereign and saving grace that has done a work in us, the thought of our heart, of my heart, was this. There is no God. And how I thank you that you've plucked me out of that that you have given me insight. Not an insight in which I can boast, but an insight for which I give you thanks to see and to understand that you are God, that you are with the righteous generation, that you are the refuge of your afflicted. And now, Lord, as we look around and we see the world, the enemy that rages against you, against your anointed, against your people, we are comforted to be reminded that they eat up your people as they eat bread only because they are still the fool, acting according to their folly. We hear you from your heavenly throne looking down and saying, do the workers of iniquity not know? And so we humbly confess and rejoice to say that by your grace we do know. 
And Lord, we pray that as we keep these things in mind, who the enemy is and why he is the enemy, and as we were reminded of who we once were and how we have been saved by grace alone, may we then be full of perseverance and faith. May we rejoice and be glad. And may we boldly speak the truth and live righteously in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation among whom we are called to shine as lights in the world. To you alone be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.